Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. What's up, everybody? Devin here, obviously. Quick ask for you before we jump into this week's interview. You can help us grow Reveal by rating the podcast, wherever it is that you tune in. Five-star reviews are huge when it comes to getting visibility, and more visibility helps us continue to provide high-quality, ad-free content for you. So if you're a return visitor, please take 15 seconds to leave a five-star review now and share why you like the show. And if this is your first episode, welcome. You're off the hook. Hope you enjoy Reveal, and you'll join us next week too. Don't forget to subscribe. Now, for this week's episode, we're going to replay the last bit of content from Celebrate Unstoppable, Gong's virtual event that we hosted a couple weeks ago. I had the honor and the privilege and the slightly nerve-wracking experience to interview Ariana Huffington one-on-one. And you might recognize that last name. She is, in fact, the co-founder of the Huffington Post, and she's currently the CEO of Thrive Global. I'll keep this intro short. Because as you'll hear as we get started on the interview, I go through all of her accolades. Now, this interview is really timely because we talk about how to thrive through adversity as a leader. And if you're a fan of our micro actions, you'll love this episode because the back quarter or third is all about different micro actions that Ariana actually promotes. It's something that she does as well. So you'll leave with tons of takeaways for how to maintain focus and productivity. Uh, really hope you enjoyed the interview. So let's get into it. Ariana, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, we are very excited to have you, and I um, appreciate your time. I'm very excited to be with you, Devon. Now, before we dive into you know some of the Q&A and some of the stories that I know you have ready for us, uh, I'd love just to share a little bit more about you for our audience. And so, as most people know, you're the co-founder of Huffington Post, one of the most respectable and well-known media brands on the internet. You're a renowned author and journalist, you have 15 books under your belt, and the last two have become instant international bestsellers, I see. You made the list for Time Magazine's uh, top 100 most influential people, and you also made Forbes' most powerful women list. And then last, and most recently, you're the founder and CEO of Thrive Global, where you also host a podcast. And so for those who are new to Thrive, what's your mission and what prompted you to start the company? So thank you so much, Devon. Great to be with you. And my mission that prompted me to leave the Huffington Post to start Thrive goes back to 2007 when I had been building the Huffington Post for two years. I was the divorced mother of two teenage daughters and I collapsed from burnout, exhaustion, hit my head on my desk, broke my cheekbone. And that was the beginning of my recognizing that not only I, but millions of people around the world were suffering from burnout. And that it had become a global epidemic. 
based on our delusion that in order to succeed, we have to be always on. So I started covering all these issues at the Huffington Post. In fact, by the time I left in 2016, 50% of our traffic was coming from non-political topics. But then I wanted to move beyond just helping people have more awareness about how to best live our lives and help people go from awareness to action. So Thrive is a behavior change technology company. And we've built a platform that is a SaaS enterprise product and to help people uh, recharge, take care of themselves, uh, prioritize their well-being and mental health and see the results in performance and productivity and giving employers like a dashboard where they can see how their employees' health and mental health are and how that connects with productivity. That's fantastic. Something I know that's top of mind for a lot of people um, and definitely something we'll get into a little bit more. It, it sounds like, you know, mental health and, you know, watching out for burnout is top of mind. What's the future for Thrive look like in the next couple of years? Well, Thrive um, has actually seen an incredible increase in demand during the pandemic uh, because now health and wellness are no longer just a nice to have for companies. They are truly essential uh, and imperative for a company and its bottom line. And so we are seeing that as companies now are getting ready to go back to offices, um, they can take care of the physical things, you know, the elevator protocols and the plexiglass and the masks, but they are recognizing they also need to take care of their employees' stress levels and anxiety and fear. And that's where we come in providing a mental resilience layer. So we are basically seeing everything now accelerate because the pandemic and indeed um, the racial injustice reckoning have helped employers recognize that in order to have cultures that are not fueled by burnout, that are inclusive, um, they need to and strengthen their employees' resilience and empathy, which is central to creating a healthy, thriving culture. Before we get into your unstoppable story, uh, I'd like to dig into your background a little bit. I know your father was a journalist, and you had exposure to many countries and cultures growing up because you were born in Greece, you went to school in England, you studied abroad in India, all before moving to the States. So I'm curious, how have these influences impacted your career and your outlook as a business leader? There is something uh, powerful, actually, about being an outsider in different cultures um, because it, um, it gives you a sense of um, what is happening around you, but also how you show up in that world. And uh, you have less of a tendency to look over your shoulder for approval. And that's a great thing for an entrepreneur, um, a leader at any level. And it makes it a little easier to be unstoppable. I love, uh, I love your term 
but it gives you a little more um, a little more risk taking ability and uh, an opportunity to not be as afraid of failing. Well, speaking of risk taking and not afraid of failing, your accomplishments individually are really impressive. Yet you manage multiple businesses and projects at the same time. So I have to know what's your source of inspiration and motivation to continue to build new ventures and content channels? Well, I um, feel the most exciting thing for me is trying to solve problems. Like if I see a problem like burnout and um, the growing stress and anxiety, even pre-pandemic, I love the challenge of finding solutions to problems that don't yet have solutions. And, and that was really what drove me to launch Thrive Global uh, because I'm convinced that people don't have to live lives fueled by burnout. That in fact, we are much more productive and effective when we are able to recharge and to tap into a deeper part of ourselves from which we can deal with challenges much more effectively. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's tough to do to, to kind of accept that sometimes we need to slow down or stop in order to speed up, right? And to be to, to reach our potential. And also to recognize that slowing down sometimes can be literally 60 seconds. <laughs> Everything we're doing at Thrive is based on the latest science and the latest data. And neuroscience now tells us that it takes 60 seconds to course correct from stress. Interesting. You know, the cortisol hormone that floods our bodies when we are stressed out, um, in fact, can leave our bodies in 60 seconds. The rest of the stress happens in our heads. So we've built into our behavior change platform a 60-second reset. And what the reset is about is asking our users to bring together all the things that are joyful for them. Joy triggers, we call them. It could be pictures of your kids, your flowers, and your favorite song at the moment, a piece of poetry, a landscape, anything. And we put it together, and anytime they feel stressed, they can just play it. And suddenly, it literally changed the neural pathways of our brain, moving us from um, feeling stressed, anxious, fearful, to remembering what we're grateful for, remembering what brings us joy, which makes us much more resilient and much more unstoppable, Devon. And I think especially as we're, you know, people working from home, the lines are blurring, right, from personal life to work, when do we start, when do we stop? And so I think that 60-second pause is, is really impactful, and I know we'll talk about it a little bit more uh, towards the end of our interview today. So let's get into your unstoppable story. We asked you to join our event, Celebrate Unstoppable, because you're familiar with the persistence, the grit, the determination required to succeed at the highest levels. You are unstoppable. So I think, and I think one of the best examples of that is your journey in trying to get your second book published because you were told no so many times. So can you share the process and what that journey was like and, and what the ultimate outcome was? Yes, so I became a writer accidentally. 
I was at Cambridge in England and a publisher happened to see me uh, take part in a debate and um, and asked me to write a book on the changing role of women. So I wrote that book. That book did very well. And then I uh, wrote a book on political leadership, uh, which nobody wanted to publish. And uh, literally, I got 37 rejections, one after the other. Wow. And um, by rejection 37, I had run out of money. And, and and all my savings from the first book had disappeared. And um, I remember walking kind of despondent down St. James's Street in London and wondering what I should do, thinking that perhaps my first book was a fluke and I should go get a job doing something else. And then I saw a Barclays Bank in the corner and um, armed with nothing but a lot of Greek chutzpah, I walked into the bank and asked the bank manager for a loan. And uh, I had no assets. And for some reason, the bank manager gave me the loan. I have no idea why. I'm sure he has no idea why. Maybe he really liked your first book. <laughs> <laughs> but it changed my life because it made it possible for me to keep it together for a few more rejections until finally the book was published. It never did well. But at least it was published and it gave me an opportunity to stay on track as a writer. Mm -hmm. And also, it uh, gave me an opportunity to remember that discouragement is really the hardest thing in life. Uh, because when we're discouraged, we give up. And um, it means we are going to make it much harder for ourselves to take a risk next time. Right, right. So that was kind of the story. And it reminded me a little bit of fairy tales. You know, in fairy tales, um, sometimes the hero or the heroine is lost in a dark forest. And what happens? You have these helpful animals that come out to guide them out of the forest, where, in a sense, the bank manager uh, was like a helpful animal disguised as a bank manager. And I still send him a holiday card every year to thank him. So I have to imagine, like, as you're going through, you know, hearing no 30, hearing no 31, 32, did giving up ever cross your mind? And if so, when? Like, at what point, you know, did you maybe hit that threshold of like, man, maybe self-doubt started to creep in? Like, did, did that happen to you? Oh, absolutely. Um, and thank you so much for recognizing that it's one rejection after another. Normally, when you say 37 rejections, you know, it only takes a second to say it. So. Yeah. Yeah, of course. <laughs> the drama of one rejection after the other. Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I don't think we can ever expect ourselves not to go through self-doubt or not to go through fear about the future. The question is, do we let these feelings overwhelm us and be determinative? Or do we experience them but still move on without getting discouraged to the point of 
abandoning the project, whatever it is. Mine was writing a book, but it could be anything that we are all engaged in. Yeah. I mean, I have to imagine you probably had a, a conversation with yourself, right? When it's, you know, you're, you're, you've gotten no a whole bunch of times. And then you think to yourself, you know, I'm going to go into this bank and I'm going to ask for a loan. And that's a big gamble on yourself, right? Because you, like you said, you didn't have any way to pay this loan back. So I'm curious what that conversation with yourself looked like and how did you kind of muster up that self-confidence to say, you know what, I'm going to keep going. So a lot of it has to do with what's the worst thing that can happen. <laughs> That's a good mind frame. I think it's a good time frame for all of us because often the worst thing might be, oh, you know, I'm going to be rejected and humiliated. Well, that's fine. It's not like the end of the world, right? It feels and like it, but yeah, you're right. It feels like it, but it's not. So for me, it's really about a perspective. Like if you can put the worst thing that can happen in perspective, then it's much easier to take that step. And I thrive. We base, you know, our whole behavior change um, product um, on micro steps. Mm -hmm. Because we believe it's through these micro steps, these small incremental daily steps that we call too small to fail. I like that. I like that. That, um, that we actually change behavior and make us ourselves more resilient and uh, more able to achieve our projects and our dreams, whatever they are. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the concept of uh, getting 1% better every day or 1% better every week. Oh, yes, or every month. It doesn't matter. as long. It's like I feel that we are going in one direction or the other. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. And, I mean, I don't know if you've ever tried to lose weight, Devon. You look very fit. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but, you know, I, I feel that you're either going towards losing weight, even if it's announced a week, or you're going towards putting on weight. Yeah. <laughs> And I think people see that now um, during the pandemic when a lot of people have reverted to stress behaviors like stress eating or being sedentary and not moving enough. And we can turn these um, habits around um, through li these little micro steps like uh, with the companies we are working with. We are, for example, right now working with the entire HR leadership at Walmart, 2,500 people. And they are all picking different micro steps. And they can be, when we finish our conversation, I'm going to walk around for 60 seconds before I sit down for my next um, call. Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to take some calls on the phone so I can walk instead of sitting down. Or if I'm feeling stressed, I'm going to focus on my breathing. And so right. these are small things. It's not I'm going to leave and go for a two-week vacation in the Caribbean. <laughs> it's just small interventions right. during the day, which mean that by the end of the day, I won't be as exhausted 
and uh, I'll be able to let my brain slow down, unwind, so that I can actually um, sleep. And sleep is very, very important as we're looking at how we can be unstoppable. Yeah. I'd like to transition a little bit to some advice you can give because, and and then we kind of talked about this, success after it's achieved is often perceived by others as this up and to the right journey, right? Because the hardship is rarely shown. It's rarely seen. Um, You know, it's, it's the highlights and the accolades that get all the spotlight. But in the journey to success, however you measure it, whether it's you want to be a CEO, you want to be the best parent you can be or anything in between, you know, as you know, there's full of obstacles and challenges. So what advice can you share to our listeners who are in the midst of a challenge today with so much going on in the world? Maybe they're trying to progress themselves, their career. I'm curious what advice do you have? Oh, um, the most important thing for me is to recognize that no success is ever linear. I love reading biographies and I've also written biographies and The truth is that it's more like a spiral. You know, you go up and you go down and you go up as long as there is some kind of ascending line. Mm -hmm. And and that makes us um, much more resilient and less likely to be discouraged. Right. That depends a lot on how much we prioritize recharging. You know, if you look at athletes, Recovery is part of performance. Right, yeah. You know, they recognize that before game day, they need to make sure they get enough sleep, that they eat right, that they recover from training. And we have um, quite a few athletes who are investors in Thrive because they um really believe in what our mission is. They see it in their own careers. Um, Andrew Goodall, Kevin Durant, the San Francisco 49ers. So I think it's important for those who are corporate athletes or entrepreneurs or in sales um, to to be able to um, reconnect with their own purpose and and come from the most uh, wise part of themselves. Because listen, we are all being judged by the quality of our decisions. And when we're exhausted and depleted, um, our decisions are not the best. And we've collected in our platform a lot of stories from extremely successful business leaders talking about how, why they prioritize their sleep or time to recharge. Even Jeff Bezos wrote on Thrive that he gets eight hours of sleep because it improves the quality of his decisions. And of course, the quality of our decisions is much more important than the quantity of our decisions. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is the, the best uh, argument I've heard for sleep is to help make better decisions. And I also like corporate athlete. I, I never made it to the NBA, but I'm going to steal a corporate <laughs> athlete for myself moving forward. That, uh, that makes me feel good just thinking about it. <laughs> now, you've written um, a lot of really good stuff lately about how to lead through uncertain times, how to approach productivity in today's world with COVID-19, 
And what I really liked was what the civil rights movement can teach us about self-care, which is really relevant for the Black Lives Movement that we're seeing today. So I'm curious if you want to share any of your top advice for leaders who are trying to figure it out as well. This is all really new for them. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting because self-care now sometimes is reduced down to bubble baths and face creams. But in fact, um, when you go back to the civil rights movement, you know, Martin Luther King wrote about it, Rosa Parks uh, practiced yoga and meditated until she was 92 years old. Wow. So for many activists, self-care is really a way um, to be able to sustainably fight to change the world. And any, anything we do, whether it's uh, in our companies or um, in our activism to make the world better, is dependent on, on how effective we're going to be. And again, if we are depleted, burned out, we're not going to be as effective. And that's really the essence of what I was writing there. And um, in the same way, in our everyday work and life, if we make everything urgent, then we never end the day. Right. So we need a very clear distinction between what is urgent and what is really important. Because if everything is urgent, nothing is urgent. Right. So, uh, you know, there are some people who live in a permanent state of firefighting. Yes, yes. And one of the micro steps, you know, we have hundreds of micro steps that thrive, but one of them is to declare an end to the working day. Interesting. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that I bet everybody uh, watching us, and I'm sure you, Devon, doesn't have a natural end to our working day. Like we could stay up all night, you know, answering emails, uh, handling things. But we need to declare an end. Um, and that declaration for me is when I turn off my phone and charge it outside my bedroom. You know, if I expect to be to, um, down to zero in my email inbox or have handled absolutely everything, it means I would be up all night and be exhausted the next day and not yeah. be as effective. Very familiar with that. And I'm sure we all are. And that's why, because we, we all learn through ritual, I recommend this ritual of separating ourselves from our phone because you know this thing is not a phone it's a nuclear weapon the last thing we do with it is call anybody sure so it's really um the repository of every project and every problem so separating ourselves from it so that we can actually transition to our time to recharge is very important. And I've written a whole book on sleep, happy to make it available to anybody who wants. And uh, we've also launched with Audible a suite of sleep meditations 
I did a parody of Good Night Moon called Good Night Smartphone. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to check that one out. And it's all free. Audible released them for free during the pandemic. Oh, and also, um, Didi recorded um, a sleep meditation. You know, P. Didi, Sean Combs. And um, it's wonderful. His booming voice uh, will put me to sleep anytime I'm exhausted <laughs> and, and stressed. Uh, I'd love to dig into what you said, the end of a workday. I'm curious if you look at your workday or just generally your philosophy as like, you know, a time-based, like I'm going to work for eight hours or 10 hours or 12 hours. Or if you view it as maybe you know, I'm going to get as much done as I can today. And when I kind of feel tapped out, when I feel that burn starting, I'm going to put it away. Or maybe maybe another route that I'm not thinking of. So Devon, for me, it's like being clear about what are the important things I have to do today. If you think of it, what are the crystal balls that I can't let drop? Right. And... Um, learning to prioritize those things that are essential and then be comfortable with the incompletions. Yeah, I think that last part's tough. Yeah, it's very tough, especially because I'm sure you and a lot of people watching are very type A, very driven, you know, they want to get everything done, but the truth is we can't. So the most important thing is to make it very clear to ourselves what the priorities are and wait until the next day to handle what is not a priority. Now that's great because a lot of the folks listening are, are revenue professionals, you know, people in sales, uh, technology companies, which are, you know, by design, fast growth, fast pace. Um, you had something that I really liked. You had said, you know, um, the concept of putting on your own oxygen mask first, before you go take care of your team. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yes, we found with many of the companies we're working on, um, big multinational companies like Accenture, Walmart, Verizon, we found that the leaders felt such a sense of responsibility uh, during this time that they considered it self-indulgent to do anything for themselves. So in our work with them, we help them make this mindset shift where they realize that, in fact, when they prioritize um, recharging, when they put their own oxygen mask on first, they're going to be much more effective as leaders. And we are all leaders in our own way. Mm -hmm. So whatever we're doing, whether we're individual contributors or managing teams, we need to put our own oxygen mask on first. Right. Uh, because from that place, we're going to be much more effective at whatever our goals are. Yeah. It sounds like the real barrier is just getting people to accept and acknowledge that self-care is how you become more effective. It's not putting more fuel on the fire. It's pausing for a little bit. And I imagine that's probably a conversation you guys have with a lot of your clients. Yes. You actually put your finger on it, Devon. And because I'm a bit of a research nerd, 
um, I tried to understand how come we all as a culture came to believe something that is not backed by science and not backed by data. Truth is that in order to be more effective, we have to be always on. We can't disconnect. Untrue. And what I found is that it goes back to the first industrial revolution. When we first kind of became enamored with machines, we started revering machines. And the goal with machines, uh, in the same way the goal with software now, is to minimize downtime. Software companies brag this has 99.9% uptime. Yep, you beat me to it. <laughs> but for the human operating system, downtime is not a bug, it's a feature. So when we realize that, then we don't see downtime as something that um, makes us less effective. We see downtime as something that makes us more effective. Yeah, I've seen it on contracts we send out all the time as a salesperson is you know 99.99% uptime or as much as you can get. And there is this natural reflection, I think, of people thinking that's how we should be as well. Yeah, exactly. um, especially when you dwell in technology and that's, you know, everything's on it. You, know, you hardly ever turn your phone off, your computer. And I think we've naturally internalized that, uh, as you said. Absolutely. I think that's the issue. And, you know, I I write a lot about these things. I have a Sunday newsletter, um, thriveglobal.com slash Ariana. It's free. And uh, I try to look at what's happening in the world and um, tailor a lot of our micro steps to what is happening right now. The same way, Devon, in your podcast, you call them micro actions, right? Yeah. So myself and uh, Sheena Badani on my team, we host a podcast for Gong. And at the end of every episode, and we have interviews much like this. At the end of them, we have a micro action where we take that high level concept and we take it down to you know one, two, or three things you can do right now today. You know, if you're in your car listening to it, maybe you can think through these things. If you're walking, you know you can do them. Um, and so I was really excited to to see that you do the same thing and you have you have hundreds of them. Yes, I love that because for me, that is really the way to help people change behaviors. Um, New Year resolutions don't work. We know people abandon them after two weeks. Yeah. So, but if you break them down and make them easy. And the other thing I believe in that we practice is something called habit stacking. Like how do you um, add a healthy habit, a healthy micro step or micro action on top of an existing habit? So, for example, you're washing your hands. During that time, remember three things you're grateful for. You're washing the dishes, whatever, something that you do regularly and a healthy habit. You know, I got to dramatically increase the amount of time I spend on my treadmill by making a pact with myself that um, whatever show I'm binging on, I can only binge on it on my treadmill. <laughs> That's a good compliment. Uh, the latest one was Billions. Have you watched Billions? I have not, but you're the second person to tell me to check it out, so maybe okay. I should. You've got to watch Billions. And All right. 
but I could only watch it on my treadmill. So there was a Saturday when I did three and a half hours on my treadmill. <laughs> I didn't want to stop watching. So these are like little tricks mm-hmm. where we help ourselves adopt healthy habits through habit stacking. Habit stacking. I like that a lot, especially the things like you said, they're physical, but they don't require much mental thought, yes. right? Washing the dishes, vacuuming, all these fun chores, the treadmill running. Um, well, cool. And you have a couple other ones too. And I know you shared one, which was, uh, we kind of touched on it, which was setting a news and social media like off time. Yes. That's is- really important right now because we all are obsessed with the news. Yeah. And, uh, and yet it's so important to stop consuming coronavirus news mm-hmm. um, so that we can disconnect from, um, you know, the stress, the anxiety that, that um, endless news about the pandemic can bring us and begin to unwind so that we can go to sleep. How can leaders ensure that they're you know, being empathetic, right, to these circumstances that are going on, while also balancing, you know, effectiveness and productivity, right? Because you have the, I want to do right by you, I want to, you know, lend you an ear, there's a lot going out in the world. But then there's also business initiatives that need to be met. Do you have any insights or advice for people that are trying to balance those? Yes, I actually believe that when we're empathetic, we can build more robust teams, and that will lead to a more robust business. So I don't think that empathy and business objectives are on opposite sides of the spectrum. On the contrary, I think they're connected. And when we realize that, we see how everything is connected to tapping to the best in us. Um, whether it's uh, creativity, innovation, empathy it's all kind of together right and um these qualities are the first to disappear when we are exhausted um that those are great do you have any other of your favorite uh you know habit stacking or micro steps you can share well um the most important in a way is making our breathing conscious so when we're exhausted or stressed if we can take again the 60 seconds and consciously inhale and exhale, it really changes the stress pathways in the brain. And what I love about that, Devon, is that Navy SEALs do it. Because they do it. They know it's good. <laughs> exactly. So some people may say, oh, my God, breathing, that sounds like warm and fuzzy. No. Navy SEALs, when they are in a particular time of danger, they practice something called box breathing, which is inhale to the count of four, pause to the count of four, exhale to the count of four. So, you know, my point is that if it's good enough for Navy SEALs, it should be good enough for us uh, in the business world. Absolutely. For for us corporate athletes out here. Yes, got it, Devin. It's all yours now. <laughs> I appreciate it. 
Well, um, thank you so much for, for joining us, for sharing your unstoppable story and for all these micro actions. I know right after this, I'm going to give myself 60 seconds, do some <laughs> box breathing uh, before moving on with my day. But just want to say a sincere thank you. Thank you so much, Devon. I really enjoyed that very much. Thank you. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io. 